And if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 today. Matthew 16, first book of the New Testament. We're in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, in order that the events happened, to discover for ourselves who Jesus really was, what he really said, what he really taught, what he really did. There's so much hearsay about Jesus in culture. We want to see for ourselves in the Bible who this man Jesus is. Last week, we saw a miraculous healing of a blind man by Jesus, and we learned a lot about how the Lord heals. And this week, we're going to go on a fascinating road trip with Jesus and his disciples, which is going to teach us about salvation. So Jesus and his disciples will now head up about 25 miles north of Galilee to a city, a town called Caesarea Philippi. It's a town whose name literally means Caesar Philip. And Caesarea Philippi was notable because it was the center of pan worship. Not the cookware, but pan was a half man, half goat, pagan god. And there at Caesarea Philippi was and is a huge rock with a cave carved into it. And at the time Jesus and his disciples would have been visiting this place, there would have been the idol of the half man, half goat, pagan god Pan inside this cave that was carved into this massive rock. And behind the rock, a stream flowed that went into a nearby hill. And where it went into the nearby hill, there was a little bit of a cave, but too small to really get in. And the wind would sometimes whip through there, and these strange noises would come out of this cave entrance. And the locals decided this is where the spirits of the underworld of Hades come in and out of the earth. And they referred to it as the gates of Hades. So those who worshipped Pan would do so on this huge rock through bizarre sexual rituals that, let's just say, involved people and animals in various combinations. There's no more detail forthcoming on that. Are you getting the picture that this is sort of the last place that a good Jewish boy would go at the time of Christ? But Jesus takes his disciples there. And can you imagine the scene as they're walking and they're just saying, are you, are you guys realizing where we're going? We're going to Caesarea Philippi. John, don't, don't tell mom. She's going to be so mad. Okay, okay, we'll make pinky swear. Don't tell where we're going. And Jesus is just leading them up to the last place in the world somebody should take a group of Jewish boys. Especially when you realize that the disciples were generally between 10 and 13 years old. Only Peter was old enough to pay the temple tax. Peter may have been in his early 20s or 18 or 19, but the rest were between 10 and 13. They're preteen boys. Jesus' disciples were more like a youth group. And when I was a youth leader, my first year being a youth leader out of high school, the small group I got was the preteen boys because I didn't have seniority and nobody wants the preteen boys. Because if you get a group of preteen boys together and you want to have a focused and meaningful discussion, you just can't. You just can't have a focused and meaningful discussion. If I got three good minutes out of that group, I was like, I'm, I'm working miracles here with this group. Great things are happening. And if you disagree with my assessment of preteen boys, you may have a supernatural gifting for working with them, and you should talk to me after the service about that. 
The only thing that makes boys that age calm down is the presence of a girl that they like, who they're trying to impress. That may bump their attention span all the way up to a minute and a half. And this is who Jesus has with him as his disciples. Bless his heart. Verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Jesus is doing what any good rabbi did and still does, which is he's trying to lead his disciples to understanding and revelation by leading them through questions. If you know anything about interpersonal communication, you know that you will convince somebody of something much more thoroughly if you can lead them to come to the conclusion on their own rather than simply stating a fact. This is what rabbis would do. This is how they would teach. They would lead their Talmudim, their students, through questions to help them come to an understanding. And so Jesus says, this is the first question I'm gonna ask to open up this topic. Who are people saying that I am? What are they saying about me? The title Son of Man is prophesied to be used of the Messiah all the way back in the book of Daniel. And Jesus used it to refer to himself over 80 times. So Jesus is not asking his disciples, who do men say the Messiah is? He's asking them, who do men say I, Jesus the man? Who do they say that I am? Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus son of Joseph, who do men say that I am? He wants to make it clear we're not having an abstract, vague discussion about the God force in the universe. We're having a discussion specifically about him, Jesus Christ on the earth at that time. Do you know that no serious secular historian or scholar debates the fact that Jesus was a real man who lived on the earth? No serious student of history debates that in any serious academic institution. Everybody admits he lived on the earth in Israel at the time the gospel said he did. What's debated is who Jesus really was. How would our society answer that question? Who was Jesus? What sort of answers would you get? Some would say he's a good man. He was a rabbi. He was a miracle worker. Even the Jews believe that. He was a prophet. That's what Islam teaches. He was a God, that's what Hinduism would say. He was uh, maybe a mystic who attained full enlightenment and transcended our world. He was a political revolutionary who was martyred by the Romans or even the brother of Lucifer, according to Mormonism. Indeed, there's no shortage of opinions as to who Jesus was. So the disciples answer Jesus, sharing the opinions of the Jewish population of the day. Verse 14, so they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Let me tell you why they mentioned these names. John the Baptist had been killed by this time. He had been beheaded by King Herod. And apparently some people thought Jesus was the reincarnation of John the Baptist. They're obviously ignorant to the fact that Jesus and John the Baptist had actually been in the same place at the same time in several instances, most notably when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. We discussed at length in our message on the two witnesses of Revelation 11, so I'm not going to go into it in detail today, but there was a prophetic expectation that Elijah was going to come back, some sort of reincarnation or reappearance of Elijah. So people thought maybe Jesus is the reappearance of Elijah. If you want more info on that, I put a reference on your outline. You can go listen to the message where we get into more detail on that. And others thought Jesus was the reincarnation of Jeremiah or some other prophet. 
So we can safely deduce that the general populace at this time agreed that Jesus was some type of prophet. He was some type of supernaturally empowered teacher and miracle worker. And yet what people think about Jesus, what people think about Jesus is not the most important question. That was Jesus' conversation opener with his disciples. And it's his conversation opener with you and I. Now Jesus asks the one question, the only question that really matters. Verse 15, he said to them, and then underline this, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter what anybody else is thinking. It doesn't matter what books or magazines say or what the internet says. Jesus is asking you, who do you say that I am? And now comes Peter's greatest moment. This is his one shining moment. By all indications, Peter answers on behalf of the 12, taking the leadership role that he'll continue to have in the group. Peter gets straight to the point and he leaves no room for ambiguity. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, underline his whole answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Right answer. That's the right answer. There's so much more behind Peter's statement than we realize. Many of you know this, but I put it on your outline just in case you don't. The word Christ is simply the Greek word for Messiah. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. So what Peter is saying is he's saying, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So if you want to understand this, the next thing you understand is, well, who are we talking about when we talk about the Messiah? When we speak of the Messiah, we're talking about someone the Jews have been waiting for for thousands of years. When we talk about the Messiah, we're talking about someone of whom the Old Testament prophesies over 300 times. In other words, the profile of the Messiah, who he's going to be, is given to us in the Old Testament. And the Messiah has over 300 prophetic criteria he has to meet. If he doesn't meet all of them, if he meets 299 of these prophetic criteria, he's not the Messiah. He has over 300 criteria he has to meet. And we've talked about this before. If you do the math on that, it would be impossible statistically for anyone other than the Messiah to fulfill all those criteria because there are criteria that are completely beyond the control of any person. You can't control when you're born. You can't control where you're born. And there are several other things that are impossible to fake. To give just one example, Isaiah 9, 6 prophesies hundreds of years before Jesus is born. It's on your outline. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor and then underline Mighty God and then underline Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is one prophetic verse hundreds of years before Jesus is born and here's what it tells us. The Messiah is going to be born as a child. He's going to be a he. He's destined to rule politically. We know that's going to happen in the millennium, Revelation 20. He's going to be God, mighty God. It's right there. He's going to be a son, but he's also going to be the father, everlasting father. How does that work? Well, we would say it's because he's one with the father. It's speaking of the Trinity. Jesus said, you've seen me, you've seen the father. And on and on and on we could go. You know, Christianity is the only faith that's built off predictive prophecy. There is no other religion where you can go and you can say, prove to me that it's true. 
And they can say, well, here's a prophecy that's 1,500 years old that was fulfilled to the day. The Old Testament is littered with prophecies that were fulfilled, some of them to the day. Hundreds, sometimes more than a thousand years in advance in ways that are irrevocably proven, historically verifiable. And when you understand this, it changes your view of the faith. When you say, well, how do I know if this is all real? Christianity is the only faith where you can say, well, here's how I know it's real. God predicted things and hundreds of years later, they came to pass exactly like he said they would. And he's still doing it. There are things happening today that were prophesied thousands of years ago and things that are about to happen. You can test Christianity. You can't test any other faith. The point is when we talk about the Messiah, we're not talking about an abstract, undefined concept. We're not talking about who's the Messiah to you. The Old Testament makes it very clear. This is who the Messiah is. He will be this and this and this and this and this. He will do this and this and this and this and this. Most notably, it says the Messiah will be God in the flesh. We just read that in Isaiah 9. So when Peter says you are the Christ, when he says you're the Messiah, it's a statement that means much more than just a title. It means you're God in the flesh. You're the revelation of the Father. You're the one prophesied in Genesis who will crush the serpent's head. You're the one the Old Testament says will redeem us. You're Emmanuel. You're God with us. You're the messianic prophecies incarnate. You're the Messiah. We believe God. We believe. That's what Peter is saying. In contrast to Peter's crystal clear confession, John the Apostle would write this in his first epistle. This is also on your outline. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So how would someone deny that Jesus is the Christ? by saying he's not God, by saying he's just a good man. He's a great teacher, he was a prophet, he was the brother of Lucifer, but, but he, he wasn't God, he wasn't God. John is telling us this, it's your first fill-in. You can't be right with God if you're wrong about Jesus. You can't be right with God if you're wrong about Jesus. I didn't write this in my notes to share this, but I just wanna point out with you rationally the stupidest argument in the discussion of God is the all roads lead to God argument. It's so stupid, it blows my mind that people actually believe it. And this is not a Christian conversation, this is a rational philosophical conversation. Because you have monotheistic religions and you have pluralistic religions. In other words, you have religions, you go somewhere like India and there are tens of thousands of gods in some belief systems. Then you have monotheistic religions where there's one God, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. Those two things alone, incompatible. One religion says there's one God, one God only. One says there's an infinite number. Those two things can't meet in any way. They can't lead to the same place. Then within the monotheistic religions, you have multiple religions saying there's only one God and it's our God. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if all roads lead to God, then all the gods are horribly confused. It's an answer people give when they haven't done a lick of research into anything. There is absolutely no way every religion is compatible. It's, it's rationally, logically, philosophically impossible. It reveals a real lack of sincerity in a person's spirituality when they say, I think all roads lead to God and you just need to be a good person. 
it means they haven't devoted even 30 minutes to looking into the reality of God because that is just something that makes no rational sense. And the Muslim would say the same thing. The Jew would say the same thing. It doesn't make any sense. They're not compatible. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now get this, because this is just one of countless places in the Bible where Jesus says he is God. If you understand what the Old Testament says about the Messiah, then you'll understand that anyone who says, yes, I'm the Messiah, is also saying I'm God. They are the same thing. But if you're still not getting that, Peter said plainly, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't respond by correcting Peter's misperception. He doesn't say, thanks for the compliment, Peter but I'm really just a good teacher. I'm a man of peace with a, a message for humanity. He doesn't say, Peter, don't worship me. I'm just an angel. I'm just a messenger. He doesn't say, Peter, that's blasphemous. Shame on you. You should know I'm not God. How does Jesus respond to Peter's confession? Verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, underline this word, blessed, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And then underline the rest of this verse, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I don't think it's a stretch for me to say that what Jesus is saying is, yes, Peter, you've answered correctly. And here's what's encouraging. Did this answer come to Peter because of his incredible intellect, his endless good deeds, his deep philosophical understanding of the universe? Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I'm so thankful that it works that way. Because you and I are no different to Peter and the disciples. Unless the Father through the Holy Spirit reveals to you in the deepest part of your spirit, Jesus is God. Unless he gives you that, you can't see it. You can't see it. And I want you to be encouraged by what Jesus says because Jesus says that when the Father reveals to us who Jesus is, the second we have that realization, we are what? We are blessed. We are blessed. Peter doesn't have a full theological understanding. He doesn't go, oh my gosh, I now comprehend the Trinity. He doesn't say, oh, I understand the complete plan of God. He doesn't say that. He hasn't been baptized yet. He hasn't even taken a spiritual gifts test. He probably hasn't even posted a Bible verse on Facebook yet. I know, scandalous. Before we do anything for the Lord, before we tell anyone about the Lord, before any of our behaviors change, before the Holy Spirit starts changing us from the inside out, before any of that happens, the second Jesus is revealed to us, we are blessed. The second He's revealed to us, we are blessed. Do you realize today that if you recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, then you are blessed according to Jesus? You're blessed just from that. Write this down. Our lives become blessed the moment we recognize Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. Our lives become blessed. There's no greater blessing than that. And I love that because it's so true. We are a blessed people because we've had our eyes open to see who Jesus is. Man, thank God for his grace toward us. Jesus continues responding to Peter's confession and shifts the focus to a new concept, the church. Verse 18, 
Jesus speaking. And I also say to you that you are Peter, underline Peter. And on this rock, underline rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Very visceral comment being that they were standing in the area known as the gates of Hades. You may remember that Peter was given the name Peter by Jesus. That wasn't his birth name. His birth name was Simeon or Simon, as we would say in English. And you may remember that the name Peter means rock or stone. It's the Greek word Petros. So Jesus, I'm going to call you rock or stone or rocky. And the word rock in verse 18 is actually the Greek word Petra which means a large stone. The idea is that a Petros, like Peter, would be a rock that you'd see on the ground that you could pick up and throw, while the chief in Squamish, this massive rock would be a Petra. So when Jesus refers to this rock, get this now, they're different words. Does Jesus say in that sentence that he's gonna build his church on Petros, Peter? Or does he say a different word for rock? He says, I'm going to build my church on this Petra, this bigger rock. They're different words. So write this down and then we'll unpack it. When Jesus refers to this rock, he's talking about Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. This rock refers to Peter's confession. Now, some of you know I got to address something because we're here in the text today. The Catholic Church teaches that Peter is the rock that Jesus is talking about. And they also claim that this is why Peter was the first pope, which lets them claim that the whole church was and is built upon the pope. It's two things you need to know. One, there's not a single shred of historical evidence, none, that Peter was the first pope. That's a complete Catholic myth. If you've been with us for our Revelation study, you'll know the Catholic Church wasn't even officially formed till the mid-first millennium during the 500s. And that was only after paganism had deeply infused with the church beginning under the Roman Empire reign of Constantine. Peter was not the first pope. There's not a shred of evidence of that. And as we've said, secondly, the subject of verse 18 is not Peter, but Peter's confession. Jesus doesn't say, you are Petros, and on this Petros, I will build my church. He says, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church. They're two different words for a reason. The rock the church is built on is ultimately Jesus, the rock of ages. Jesus isn't claiming that he's going to build his church on Peter the man. He's claiming that he's going to build his church on the confession, the truth, the fact that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. He says, I'm gonna build my church on that, on that statement, that truth. Peter wasn't infallible. He wasn't perfect. We all know he's gonna deny Christ three times in his hour of greatest need at the crucifixion of Christ. But that's not gonna be the end of it either. Galatians 2 details how the apostle Paul confronts Peter publicly and has to dress him down because Peter's been lapsing back into bad theology. The church was built on Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, not Peter the man. Don't take my word for it. Take Peter's word for it. 
In his first epistle, Peter describes believers as living stones. So the church is built out of believers, living stones, who share the confession of Peter, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter himself identifies in his writings who the cornerstone is that the church is built upon. If you're not familiar with architecture in this time, the cornerstone is just the first foundational stone that is laid for a building. It is literally the rock on which a building is built. Shockingly, Peter doesn't say, it's me, Peter. I am the cornerstone. No, Peter wrote that the chief cornerstone, and the verses on your outline, the chief cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ. Peter said that himself proving that when Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my church, he's not talking about Peter. He's talking about the fact that he, Jesus, is the Christ, the son of the living God, and Peter agrees in his own writings. Please know I'm not out to bash the Catholic church. When something comes up in the text, I've got an obligation to address it, and it's not my fault that the Catholic church happens to have so many beliefs that contradict the word of God. And yes, I know that was a terrible apology. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, not sorry. This wasn't the first time. <laughs> this wasn't the first time that a disciple had acknowledged the lordship of Jesus. Do you realize that Nathaniel did it at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry? And Peter had already done it twice. But none of those times did Jesus respond by saying, blessed are you. Why? What, what was different about Peter's confession this time? All the other times, their confession was an emotional response to an experience. You see, Nathaniel marveled that Jesus demonstrated what we would call remote viewing by seeing him sitting under a tree from a distance. There's a paranormal supernatural ability. Peter was awed by a miraculous catch of fish and then by Jesus miraculously feeding the 5,000. Those were all miraculous interactions that stirred the emotions and resulted in confessions of Jesus' lordship. Wow, you're God. This conversation with the disciples was different. Peter wasn't giving an emotional response. They were just talking. Peter's response was the result of thoughtfully weighing the question of who Jesus is and then sharing the conclusion that he and the other disciples had come to. Jesus tells us Peter didn't make that confession because of anything he had heard or anything he had seen. The reason he made that confession is because the Father had revealed to Peter who Jesus was. That's what made this time different. That's what made this confession real. You know, people make forays into faith all the time. Perhaps they end up in church because a relative got healed of cancer or a, a Christian friend prayed for them at work and they didn't get fired. Or, or they're in a bad situation and they need something to hold on to. That's why the term prison faith exists because there is a phenomenon in the prison system in almost every country of tons of people turning to Jesus because they need something to hold on to. Some are sincere, a lot aren't. And the reason the term prison faith exists is because most of the time they get out of prison and go straight back to being who they were before and they leave their faith in prison. It was an emotional response to something that had taken place or was taking place in their lives. Jesus is showing us here that's not what salvation is. That's not how it happens. A dark time might be a catalyst that causes one to ask the question, who is Jesus? But salvation takes place when a person says sincerely, I've come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. He's the son of God and, 
And because I've had my eyes opened, I've given my life completely to him and I'm gonna follow him all the days of my life, regardless of what happens during the days of my life. That's what Peter was saying. And that's why Jesus looks at Peter and he says, I'll build my church on that confession. Parenthetically, the scriptural evidence points to Mark's gospel actually being Peter's gospel, that Peter dictated it to Mark and Mark wrote it down. And Peter's finest hour is not recorded in Mark's gospel. These details are only given to us in Matthew because Peter apparently was too humble to write about his best moment where he looked the smartest and the brightest. It's just a tribute to the humility of Peter and we're thankful for that example. Verse 19, Jesus says, and I will give you, speaking of the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Man, the church has used this verse to come up with some weird beliefs. I mean, really, really weird beliefs. I saw a post, somebody I know liked this post, and it was a Facebook post from a um, dude in like Nigeria who's an, an evangelist, a prosperity gospel evangelist. He had a photo of his living room, and the whole room was covered in money. Like literally, like every table, sofa, the whole floor covered in like stacks of money. And he had said, if you believe that God can make you wealthy, type amen to this post and he will. And I'm like, oh, come on. You know how many people typed amen? 23,000. <laughs> 23,000 people had typed amen. Ironically, the same day, we saw our kids on our trampoline with a neighborhood friend and they have play money and they had put it out all over the trampoline and were rolling around in it. And I was like, oh no, they're gonna become televangelists. What's going on? So we'll have to nip that in the bud. But many of you have probably heard the teaching that says, you know, if you have enough faith, you can lose anything you want. You can lose more money, a promotion. You can lose romance and make that dream person come into your life. And you know what's great? You can bind up people who get in your way because of what Jesus said. And what they're really using is they're using bind as a synonym for curse. It's like a Christian way of saying curse. Great news, you can curse people too. That's not what this verse is saying. It may surprise you. The subject, the focus of this verse in reality is what's going on in heaven. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna use the church to accomplish my will on the earth. When heaven wants something loosed on the earth, I'm gonna do it through my people, the church. When heaven wants something bound up on the earth, I'm gonna do it through my people, the church. The idea is that the church is gonna be the instrument on the earth of the will of God from heaven. We're to be in harmony with Jesus, not demanding that Jesus be in harmony with us. Lord, I've bound up that creditor. You need to get on that. Lord, I, I have loosed a spirit of attraction on that woman. You need to make her see me for the, the amazing man that I am. It's not gonna work that way, not gonna work that way. So how does this work practically? What do we mean when we talk about binding and loosing? Well, the Lord gave us his word. He gave his church his word. Let me say it plainly, the word of God tells us what is bound in heaven and it tells us what is loosed in heaven. You wanna know another word for loose that just blessed. You wanna know what's blessed in heaven and what's bound in heaven, what's condemned in heaven, what's approved in heaven. The Bible tells us, his word tells us what is forgiven. The word tells us who is forgiven in heaven and it tells us who's not forgiven in heaven. And the Lord expects his church to operate in accordance with his word. Let me be blunt, many churches, many believers 
are very, very uncomfortable with this idea. Very uncomfortable with the reality that the Bible judges sin. Do you realize that? The Bible judges sin. It judges sin by saying this is a sin. That's judging sin. God's saying, I've judged this behavior. This is a sin. I get to decide because I'm God. That means that we can't hold God's word in one hand and say, yes, I'm part of the church. I'm a believer. We can't hold his word in one hand that defines sin and then say, you know, guys, who knows what sin is? It's a gray area. Who am I to condemn? For example, let's take the most current topic on the subject of gay marriage. Inside this church, I have an obligation to tell you that homosexuality falls under the umbrella of sexual immorality in the Bible, along with a whole bunch of heterosexual sexual sins as well, okay? Is it a sin because I judge it to be so? Am I being judgmental? No, I'm just telling you that God's already judged it. God says this is a sin. I'm just reporting to you what he's already said in his word. That's not my opinion. My opinion's irrelevant. I'm just telling you this is going on around us, and this is what God has said about it. He said this is bound in heaven. This is condemned in heaven. So, you know, guess what? I have to condemn it here on the earth too. I have to condemn sexual sin when I see it in my own life because it's condemned in heaven. If a believer is living unrepentantly in sin, the church needs to bring them under biblical discipline. Is that because the church is power crazy? No, it's because the Bible says they're already under heaven's discipline. We're just reporting what's going on in heaven. God's word tells us, it gives us the heavenly perspective and the Lord expects that what's going on in heaven will be shared as values by his church. The values of heaven should be the values of the church. When the Bible calls something sin and it's in our lives, you know what? It's sin. If we're followers of Jesus, then we agree with God. You know, you can't even become a Christian unless you agree with God's assessment that you are a sinner. I've agreed with God that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I've agreed with God on that. What God's word says is sin, man, I agree. It doesn't mean I never do it. It just means I agree with him that, yeah, it's sin. And when I do it, it's wrong. And I need forgiveness and I need healing from the Lord. I need cleansing from the Lord. And this is very, very hard for many churches, many Christians. I think especially Canadians, because this might be antithetical to our Canadian persona, which really wants to say, well, as, as long as you're happy, no worries, you know. Very un-Canadian to say, well, you know, actually that's sin and you're a believer. You shouldn't be doing that because it's condemned in heaven. It's bound in heaven. It needs to be bound on the earth too. This marks the first time that Jesus ever refers to the church during his ministry. Hermeneutics is the method by which we read, understand, and interpret the Bible. And there's a principle in hermeneutics called the principle of first mention. And what it says is that the first time something shows up in the Bible, a person, a word, a thing, a concept, there's usually going to be some profound truths revealed by that first mention. So let's find out if that's the case here. Let's see what we notice about the church in Jesus' statement. Firstly, write this down. Jesus is proud of his church. He is proud of his church. He says, on this rock, I will build whose church? My church. Not a church, not the church, my church. 
Jesus has no qualms saying, yeah, the church is mine. It belongs to me. He's not like, I don't really have anything to do with those guys. Sorry if they offended you. Jesus loves his church and he's proud of his church. And some of you might say, why? That's a valid question. Why? I mean, if you know people, if you know us, if you know me, you might go, why? Why? The answer is because Jesus sees us as perfect. And again, you may repeat, why? Well, it's because Jesus sees us potentially, because he sees us prophetically, because he sees us positionally. See, Jesus sees us potentially as what we could become. And he shows us this in the Bible when he changes people's names. He doesn't say, Peter, you're now Peter, a rock, because Peter is, has just become that. He says, that's your name because that's who you're destined to become. That's who you're going to become. He says, but you need to start carrying that name now. So he refers to you and I by our potential, by who we're going to become. And he chooses to interact with us that way right now. Secondly, he sees us prophetically. Ephesians 2.6 says we're already prophetically seated with Christ in heavenly places. And we see ourselves as down here in muck and filth, often of our own creation. Jesus sees us seated with him in eternity. And then lastly, he sees us positionally. We're clean, we're sinless, we're, we're covered in his blood and robed in his righteousness. That's our position in Christ robed in his righteousness. We can stand in the presence of his father in absolute holiness because of what Jesus has done for us. He sees us as perfect. He's proud of his church. He's proud of his church. He doesn't say, yeah, she's not really with me. She's just sort of following me around. He's proud of his church. Secondly, Jesus storms hell through his church. That's a great fill-in. Jesus storms hell through his church. He said of his church, the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. It's another verse that's been oft misinterpreted. I just used the word oft. I just wanted to point that out right there. People will say that this verse means that hell's attacks on the church won't succeed. The problem with that is basic logic. How many of you have ever been attacked by a gate? How many of you have been walking down the sidewalk and this gate just jumped off its hinges and started beating you to death? Hopefully none of you. If that's happened to you, my next question would be, what were you on at the time it happened? The scenario that Jesus is presenting here is not the gates of hell attacking the church. It's the church attacking the gates of hell. He's telling us, listen, even the gates of hell won't be strong enough to stop the church going in and rescuing people. Those who are in bondage, those who are in death, you know, storming the gates of hell might cost you your physical life. But as we studied the martyrs of history extensively in our Revelation series, we discovered that the more Satan killed God's people, the more the gospel exploded across the earth. Physical death is the best weapon that hell has. And Jesus said, even that's not going to stop my church. You know what? History's proven Jesus right. And how vivid would this statement by Jesus have been as he and his disciples are in Caesarea Philippi looking at this rock dedicated to pan worship and Jesus is essentially telling his disciples the church is even going to go places like here. All this darkness, all this demon worship isn't going to win against the power of my church. And this would have been a complete paradigm shift for the disciples because they were used to a faith where you had to avoid places like this so that your faith didn't get contaminated. 
Jesus says, no, listen, I'm going to build my church, fill my church with the Holy Spirit, and my church is going to go into dark places to rescue people because my church is going to be stronger than the gates of hell. They must have been thinking, even here, even here, Caesarea Philippi? Jesus says, yeah, even here, even here. Thirdly, Jesus moves through his church. He moves through his church. Jesus said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is saying specifically, his will on the earth is gonna be accomplished through his church. Jesus recognizes that when we go off on our own, when we shake off the accountability of other believers, things get really weird really fast. You know, Jesus didn't promise the keys to the kingdom of heaven to individuals. He promised them to his church, the body of believers. And here's what that means. When a person says, I'm done with church. Too many hypocrites. All they want is my money. So I'm going to go read the Bible myself and have my own little church with just me and my family. Here's the problem. God's not moving through that. He's not moving through that. Well, we really like it and it works for us. That's great. Bible still makes it clear God's not moving through that. Jesus takes his church being together so seriously, the Bible includes instructions on how to handle relationship issues between believers in a church. You realize when you're mad at somebody in church, you're not actually supposed to just leave and go to another church. There's actually instructions in Matthew 18 as to how we're to try and find healing and restoration and wholeness. That's what Jesus actually expects. That's how seriously he takes us being together as a church. If you're a Christian, don't ever run your mouth about the church, the global church of Jesus Christ. He loves the church. He died to create the church. The church is his bride. You can't be my friend and talk smack about my wife. You're going to be the one getting smacked when it's all said and done. It doesn't work when people say, hey, I love Jesus, but his bride got hit with the ugly stick. Man, Jesus isn't like, we can still be friends. That's cool. She's kind of hideous. It's not really Jesus' response. He's like, say what? Say what? And I'm not saying that there's never a time to criticize an individual church. Here's the principle. Loving the church of Jesus means doing everything possible to make her a more beautiful bride for Jesus. That means sometimes not allowing unbiblical teaching in the church. It means calling out false teachers. It means instead of criticizing a church for not having good enough community, you do something to actually help build good community in that church. You make the church more beautiful. If you haven't written it down already, it's this. Loving the church of Jesus means being committed to making her the most beautiful bride she can be. That's what it means to love the church. That means if you spot something that is lacking, hey, you know, we need better relationships in this church. Do something about it. You do something about it because you want to make her a more beautiful bride. It means when there's false teaching in a church, you go, that can't happen. This is the bride of Christ. We ought to keep her beautiful. We can't allow that stuff in here. When there's a need that needs to be met, when someone needs to be ministered, you do it because you want to make her a more beautiful bride for Jesus. That's how you love the church. That's the way to view the church. This is the bride of Jesus, and we want to make her as beautiful as possible. That's the way to view the church. 
If you've been with us for our Revelation series, then you know that this matters deeply because the bridegroom, Jesus, is coming for his church soon and very, very soon. The bridegroom's coming for his bride. We want to be committed to making her as beautiful as she can be. Jesus is the church's architect, builder, owner, Lord, and husband. I don't love the church because I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor because I love the church. I love the people of God. I love the bride of Christ. Jesus loves his bride. Verse 20, then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So why would he give them this seemingly counterintuitive instruction? Why not tell everybody? Because as the gospels record in several places, Jesus knew that it was not yet his time to be publicly revealed as the Messiah. That time, that day would come on the day we refer to as Palm Sunday, when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem as the Messiah King. And it had to be that specific day because of the most extraordinary prophecy in the Bible found in Daniel 9, which prophesies, and I'm not lying to you, to the day, the day when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem as king. And if you're not familiar with that prophecy, you need to be. It's the most incredible prophecy in the Bible. It's historically proven. It's inexplicable if you don't believe in God. And you can listen to a message on that. I put the reference in your outline. Go look that up this week if you're not familiar with it. Listen to it and it'll walk you through that prophecy. So in conclusion, every single one of us has already answered the question from Jesus, who do you say I am? You realize that? Everybody in this room has answered that question. And our lives are the evidence of our answer. If we have answered as Peter did, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, then we will be found following Jesus, living our lives with him as our Lord and Savior. If we've declined to give an answer, then we've given an answer. If we are living a life with ourselves as Lord, not seeking or serving Jesus, then we've given our answer. Our answer is, Jesus, you're something other than Christ. You're something other than the Son of God, and so I don't feel the need to answer. We've all answered Jesus' question, all of us. Today, if you've never answered that question with, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, I want to invite you today to change your answer. Change your answer. Like Peter, I believe that there are those of you who are hearing this message, who've come to the conclusion deep in your spirit that he is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. And it's not because everything suddenly makes sense. It's just because you say, I can't deny it. He's opened my eyes and I know in my spirit what I'm hearing is truth. Have you decided that you're in, that you're following him all the days of your life, regardless of what happens during all the days of your life? Is your relationship with God based on an emotional response? Or has the Father through the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and you can just see he's God? You will never know who you are until you know who he is. You will never know who you are. He's the one that made you. He understands not only why you're here right now, but what the rest of your life is for. He knows what your eternity is for. You can't see life clearly without Jesus. You can't see yourself clearly without Jesus. You will never know who you are until you know who he is. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who he is. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? 
I think this morning is just a wonderful time to just be thankful for the truth that, like Peter, the Father's opened our eyes to see who Jesus is. We didn't earn that. We didn't come to that conclusion because we're smarter or because we're better people, because we're good people and other people aren't. No, no, no. It's just the grace of God revealing to us who Jesus is and how desperately we need him. This is a morning and a time to be thankful for that. Jesus said, if you understand that, you're blessed. If everything else in your life goes catastrophically wrong and your life ends in tragedy, you're still blessed because of how your eternity has been changed by coming to know Jesus. You are blessed today. Father, thank you so much that we are blessed because of what you've done. Not because of anything that we've earned, but because of what you have done, we are blessed. And Lord, our confession this morning, whether we have no worries or we are overloaded by worries this morning, our confession is, Lord, we are blessed. We are blessed this morning because we know you, Jesus. Father, I pray that that blessing would extend to every area of our lives as we begin to understand we don't need to carry any burden. We don't need to carry any stress. We don't need to carry any worry. You've invited us to give those things to you. You are saying to us this morning, I carried your sins on the cross. I can certainly handle your stress and your worry and your anxiety. Why don't you give those to me too? So Father, this morning in the name of Jesus, we release those things to you. We put our faith in you and we pray that wherever there is worry or anxiety or fear, Lord, you would replace it with, as your word says, the perfect love that casts out all fear. Fill that void with faith and with trust in who you are and what you've done for us, Jesus. We love you. We love you, Lord. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.